Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. On Sunday, July 17th, our podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at the annual PodFest Berlin, a festival that brings together a variety of local podcasts under one roof. What follows is an edited version of the Common Ground Berlin session, bringing together journalists and comedians for a unique take on the news. But first, a warning. Some of the language used may be offensive to some listeners. As many of you know, Frühschoppen is a long-standing tradition in Germany where folks gather on weekends at their local tavern to catch up and chat about the news over a beer or three or wine or I'm not sure what you're drinking, Daniel, but okay. <laughs> so, but in true Stammtisch tradition, I'm going to say Post to my yeah, guests. Post, yeah. Yes. <laughs> who I will introduce shortly. Carmen, look me in the eye. Oh, sorry. oh my God, how long have you been in this country? It's okay, I'm I need a beer. Yeah, or three. Yeah, it's fine. It's still <laughs> So first, let me introduce the team who is making sure we look good and sound good. Over there by the, all that contraption stuff, that's the formal technical term, is our senior producer, Dina El-Sayed, Common Ground senior producer. Thank you, Dina. And our social media editor, who is doubling as our photographer today, is Stefano Montali, who's actually sitting right now. My husband's taking the pictures, but that's okay. <laughs> Thank you, Stefano. Woo! And we had a couple of people here working with the PodFest who've disappeared, but I wanted to thank them anyway. Geronimo and Alexi. Did I get that right, Daniel? Since mm -hmm. you, okay, awesome. So uh, thank you so much for setting that up. And now to our fabulous guests. The one in the blue dress there, okay. Because <laughs> everybody's sitting out of order the way I have it written in my script. Um, okay, is veteran American journalist Deborah Cole. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. I can promise you no Boston native knows Berlin and Germany as well as this correspondent for Agence France Presse. She was part of our inaugural Stammtisch. And Deborah, you recently covered the Cannes Film Festival too, right? I did. Any favorite moment you can share with us? I mean, it was just wonderful to be back in a cinema with a lot of people again. And Cannes really is its own bubble and a kind of magic place. But um, I think it might have been the Top Gun premiere when um, they managed to get a squadron of the French Air Force to fly over the red carpet, terrifying many, many people because this was a <laughs> bit of a surprise. But, you know, we thought, like, OK, cinema's back. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I was oh no sorry I'm not ready to jump in yet that's okay Daniel you well, everyone is going to be encouraged to jump in momentarily but yeah let me let me get through the introductions first to my right I can actually say that because this is correct is comedian Carmen Schreim welcome Habibti thank you she's Lebanese and German and does stand up in four languages although mainly English her high energy and humorous take on blending cultures is just absolutely amazing I had the pleasure of interviewing Carmen for an episode last year in which we tried to explain German humor and yes there really is German humor if you didn't think there was I, any I didn't say that but like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it okay Carmen one of my favorites of your routines was about your plans for Germany if you become chancellor yeah uh, what's your favorite routine or theme? Actually, this one as well, yeah. Uh, what, oh. This one as well, yeah. When uh, Germans and Arabs <laughs> and they have little German Arabic babies. <laughs> that <laughs> will be a bleep in the podcast, just FYI, which will, because there will be a podcast version of this that's coming out on Monday if you want to recommend it to people, you know, to listen to it. Last but not least, and our only guy on the panel today is the. <laughs> 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 is the American f 
co-founder of this fabulous podcast festival, Daniel Stern. Welcome. Like Deborah, Daniel was part of our inaugural Stummtisch, and like Carmen, he's a talented comedian who was integral to our German humor episode last year. Daniel, tell us what's easier, performing in front of a tough crowd or setting up this pot fest? Give me a tough crowd any day. <laughs> uh, I, well, you know what? I'm sure they all become easy once you've done them enough times. I've been in front of a lot of horrible crowds, and now I'm just like, oh, you again. How delightful. Uh, th- this festival I'm new to. So I'll tell you what, day two, a lot easier than day one, because day one, I'd never done it before. Uh, so, um, I don't yeah. know, you look kind of well, shell-shocked to today, though. Shell-shocked? No, no, I'm just dehydrated <laughs> and okay. underfed, and I miss my family, and I love podcasting so much that I'm pale. <laughs> Okay. That's right. You have a face for podcasts, right? Is yes, that that's it? right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So now that you've met everyone, let's talk news, because that's what we do at Stum Tishes. The first topic is one that everyone is feeling these days, namely inflation. According to a recent report in Der Spiegel magazine, one in six people in Germany live below the poverty line more than at any time since reunification. It's worse for children and the elderly, but even those of us in the labor market are feeling the pinch. Deborah, why can't the German government or American government, or any government for that matter, get inflation under control? I mean, it's not like economists haven't been warning us for the past year or so that it was coming. Yeah, so I mean, it's a little bit of a, a whack-a-mole problem. So um, we can focus on Germany since we're here. Germany uh, doesn't have control over its own monetary policy. So in order to fight inflation, it has to look to the European Central Bank. And the European Central Bank has a lot of economies it needs to be watching, and they're facing all kinds of pressure. So part of it has to do with the Ukraine war driving um, fuel prices up. That's definitely a major issue at the moment. The um, euro right now is really weak. And so you've got this kind of spiraling problem. So the European Central Bank says, right, this week, we are going to, for the first time in a decade, raise interest rates. And hopefully, that will help get the problem a little bit under control. But the other issue that certainly the German economy is going to be facing in most European economies is uh, a looming recession because of um, a lot of these pressures on the economy. So it's going to have to do this sort of careful dance to uh, raise interest rates, but just at the right amount so it doesn't snuff out economic growth. Daniel, we've heard what the problem is, but what do you think Berliners should do about inflation since governments can't get a handle on it? Um, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you doing about it? Well, I mean, I mean, the first step for any Berliner about anything is to complain about it, right? So that's something we can all band together to do. <laughs> um, you have to find your right thing to complain about. For instance, they want to raise the interest rates. I think they did that because I finally found a place cheap enough for me to buy. And they were like, ha, 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 nice try, <laughs> sir. Uh, no, I, I pay attention to ice cream prices mainly, which have been skyrocketing for years just because, ugh. It was 80 cents a scoop. How did we get over one euro? That's pre any of the influences that, that Deborah intelligently was referencing. I think the thing we could do is just maybe try and enjoy it a little bit. Enjoy it. Okay. Like, I know that it's stressful if you're, you need to buy things and you don't have enough money. But, like, you can also, like, when you're at the bakery and, like, croissants have gone up 10 cents, you can be like, oh, croissants are up 10 cents. Like, you know, like the way, like, people watch the market, you know? Like, uh, or buy croissants today, sell them tomorrow, you know. Is there a way to short the market on croissants? (laughs) 
<laughs> Croissants and ice cream. Um, Carmen, another serious question for you. Does all of this mean we should prepare to be chilly this winter, especially now that Russian gas isn't readily available in Germany? I mean, they're talking quite a price hike. Yeah, but I think we're used to it in Berlin of like being very cold. I mean, you just have to find a boyfriend or whatever, and then that's it. Human heat. <laughs> just replace normal heat with you. I don't feel really bad. for uh, One out of six in poverty, that's not so bad, right? <laughs> I mean, compared to Lebanon, that's like nothing. I don't know. <laughs> like, we have like 200%. So I was nagging about one. Of, it's not bad. I don't See, think it's bad. I was bringing you on here for, to be, give the hopeful and cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> you so don't know go. Carmen. 200% in... <laughs> Lebanon, so be happy if yeah, it's only it's one, one of six, six. It's fine. Jeez, yeah. Yeah, I was going to actually ask Daniel where that house was that you were looking at. Was it like... Uh... Oh, yeah, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I found this incredible deal, and my friend walked into the apartment, saw like the deal sheet, saw the name on the top, and she was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not real. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. amazing. So, awesome, awesome. Deborah, what are German politicians saying about what we are going to be paying for heat and electricity? And do you anticipate that the traffic like coalition is going to come up with a fix it like the nine euro transit ticket. I think the you know nine euro ticket, um, which basically it's a, a monthly ticket for nine euros and allows you to travel anywhere in Germany on most forms of public transport. It's a wonderful thing. It's been wildly popular, but it's certainly not going to solve these enormous issues that we've already touched upon. So inflation and then the issue of fuel prices. The government has uh, a few options at its disposal, but basically, you know, what we have here is a problem that was you know years in the making, which is incredible dependence on Russian energy, so oil, coal, and gas. And the government has already made steps to reduce some of that dependency, particularly when it comes to coal. They think that they won't need it, Russian coal at all by the end of the year. And oil uh, is also on a pretty good track, but gas um, is still an enormous problem, and that's what most Germans heat with. So this winter, it really completely depends on decisions that are going to be made you know, at the Kremlin as to basically how much they want to screw around with Germany and how much they want to punish European countries for imposing six rounds of sanctions as a result of the Ukraine war. And um, that's not a great position to be in. So we should expect our bills to come from the Kremlin this winter, you know, depending on how much gas costs or heating costs we have to pay. I mean, the most recent estimate that I read said that gas prices are going to triple this winter. And that is going to hit everyone in this country, you know, hard. But particularly, of course, you know, as you were talking about, you know, the Germans with the least money. I mean, it's really going to put a lot of pressure on people and uh, could really spiral in the economy and create all kinds of problems. Because we're not only talking about, of course, heating bills that individual households pay, but we're also talking about industry. And if they have to scale back production, then we're talking about job losses. I mean, it really does start getting into pretty scary territory. Uh, just think about the croissants, though. That's uh, happier. Um, Daniel, we talked a little bit about the nine euro transit ticket, and I'm going to ask you to expand on that a bit. How is that working for you? Are you in the camp of, oh, my God, let August be over and never have this again because transit is so crowded? Or um, are you in the this is great. We should do this permanently camp. Is anyone here in the I want to pay more for transit camp? <laughs> I, I, is this, like, this is like one of those things that like an editorial columnist says because they have to fill a page. Like no one is like, this is a bad idea. But it's really crowded on the trains. It was crowded two months ago and three months ago, too. And we can also just add more trains. We don't have to sacrifice having cheap transit. I think the idea that it's nine is insane. It should be zero. 
Um, this is, oh yeah, thank you, scattered applause. <laughs> I believe public transportation within the city uh, and its surrounding area should be free for the people who live in it and that tourists should pay like 50 bucks a day or something. <laughs> um, no, you know, I like that idea, that works. And like, there could be like, you know, if you're like, you have like a student price, it doesn't have to be that much, but uh, we provide an excellent service and like that's semi-private and it should, I should just get to do it. If I can do it for nine, I can do it for free. What it costs them to control uh, fare avoiders is exactly equal to how many fares they catch. So we can just cut that out and like just, you know, issue the ticket along with your Anmeldung. Have they actually been uh, looking for Schwarzfahrer, you know, for the people who are not uh, traveling with their ticket? Have you been traveling without a ticket? Uh, no, I haven't traveled without a ticket. I'm just, I haven't noticed any. I, I don't know if you've noticed any or not. Uh, I, I have not noticed any. So yeah, maybe they got the summer off, which that's cool. There you go. Um, but I think, you know, you may also not be in the hot spots for fare avoiders that they're trying to get. That, that could like be, that could be. Yeah. But let me tell you, I, the reason I asked about whether you, what camp you were in, I was coming back from Uzodom yesterday on the RE system, and we ended up having to change four times because there was construction going on. And each train was just, Rechenvoll, as they say in German. I mean, it was so full, you could barely stand or sit or whatever. And um, some guy was screaming, I can't wait till they end this next month. This was the stupidest idea either, this nine-year ticket. <laughs> so there are people, Germans out there anyway, who uh, think that this is a bad thing. Okay. Then if you want to go to Usedom, it's 18. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That solves it. Okay. Carmen, let's move to air travel, because air travel is certainly worse, I would argue, than what's going on with transit. What's happening with that? I mean, it doesn't matter whether you go to German airports, European airports, even American airports. I've been in all three uh, the last uh, couple of months. And I mean, some describe Heathrow, for example, as being on the brink of Armageddon, as they call it. Oh, no. So, uh, <laughs> and I mean, just to give you a brief idea, I was a week ago coming back from Chicago and landed in Frankfurt, and there was literally no one to drive the luggage from the planes to the baggage claim. So I had to wait three hours <laughs> for my bag. And um, never mind the horror stories that you hear about BER, which I've been avoiding at all costs. I thought I was being smart taking a train to Frankfurt and flying, and it really wasn't that much difference. So what is going on? I mean, what do you, what, have you had any recent experiences, or what do you think they need to do to fix it? I think people have been locked into their houses for two years, and then boom, they open the airport again, and then bam, like everybody is uh, trying to travel so much. But it, I think the problem is that a lot of people seemed like they've never traveled before. <laughs> so uh, you'll be waiting in line for security, and you will have like this hippie girl in front of you with all of the liquids in her backpack. And she's <laughs> like, when the security guard comes in to check her luggage, she's very surprised that she's not allowed to take liquids throughout the security line. So I think those people are causing the problem and uh, one time like my rain air flight got delayed for four hours and it's because the pilot forgot that he had a flight <laughs> <laughs> just people are forgetting like how did it used to be in the past and then they're missing out on shit Armageddon, <laughs> Armageddon. Yeah. there you go so let's talk about the individuals who look to fix the chaos in Germany the buck stops with Olaf Scholz or Deborah, would it be more accurate to say Olaf who? <laughs> I mean, how is he doing as chancellor from a domestic and an international perspective? I mean, I think Olaf Scholz does get a bit of a bad rap. Um, yeah, he doesn't look so good. That's the problem. I don't know. I mean, yeah. That, well, I mean, like, look at, you know, I covered the G7. And if you look at sort of, you know, who who else was up there on stage apart from maybe Justin Trudeau. But I mean, you know. <laughs> 
all of them were also, comp- you know, or fairly weak leaders. Um, and so it's always in, in comparison, you know, to who um, we're talking about. So on the European stage, I think that uh, Olaf Scholz, if you, you know, look to Britain, if you look to, you know, to Italy, any number of France, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of weakened leaders. And um, and even compared to, you know, Joe Biden, I mean, Olaf Scholz has already managed to get uh, quite a bit of his agenda, you know, pushed through. I mean, we've already seen the minimum wage go through. We've already seen some um, reforms when it comes to immigration. He, I think, gets a worse rap sometimes. And a lot of the reason for that has to do with how popular his predecessor was. I mean, I think that Angela Merkel in her 16 years in power earned a lot of trust and almost like affection among Germans. Although the interesting thing now is see in light of the Ukraine war how her legacy um, looks a bit more tarnished. Um, But also Olaf Scholz, he's not a great communicator, and he is surrounded by people who have a bit more charisma and vision. And uh, so Robert Habeck, I think that uh, Scholz is really going to have to watch his back at the next election because Habeck is almost universally beloved. I mean, his you know approval ratings and popularity are just off the charts. And Annalena Baerbock, who didn't cut a great figure in the campaign last year, has really come into her own as foreign minister. And so I think um, you see it in the polls already that the the Greens have surged past the SPD and are now in second place and and the CDU. So Olaf Scholz, you know, I think uh, better than his reputation, probably, but uh, but definitely facing some competition even within his own government. Yeah. Internationally, though, is he respected or? Well, I, mean- I mentioned the G7 earlier, and what was really sort of you know interesting there is Joe Biden was absolutely effusive in his praise, you know, of Olaf Scholz when they had their bilateral meeting. And if you talk to people at the U.S. Embassy here, you talk to other diplomats, um, the Americans have been a lot more critical of the German position in the Ukraine war. They feel like that, um, okay, 100 billion uh, euros towards defense, this part of the Seitenwende, this this turning point that Olaf Scholz promised the weekend after this latest invasion of Ukraine uh, began was a good start. But in terms of backing away from Russian energy, which we mentioned earlier, and also in terms of delivering weapons to Ukraine, I think the Americans have been quite critical. And so it was really interesting to see that Joe Biden decided to go all carrot and kind of no stick. And you heard him sort of whispering, you know, thank you, thank you to him. And, uh, you know, it was really this kind of moment where it felt like, and Olaf Scholz looked like, you know, I mean, (laughs) to the extent that that man shows his, you know, his feelings. (laughs) on his face. I mean, he was just, you know, he looked like he was elected prom king or something. (laughs) Um, It was really a moment, um, yeah, where Olaf Scholz seemed to, you know, kind of uh, grow into his his role. And people have been clamoring for years for Germany to play a bigger role on the world stage. And he's the guy in the chair. He certainly is. Um, We talked briefly about Ukraine here. And another leader we obviously see very much in the news every day is Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky. Daniel, what's your take on this comedic actor turned wartime leader for his country? Is he doing a good job? As a comedian, he's not really succeeding right now. No, he's not. Like, I mean, ugh. Talk, no. um, The next punchline there is too grim. He's very hot, though. 
Yeah, I I, um, <laughs> I should have asked Carmen this question. Did you say he's very hot? Yeah, yeah. he's, I don't know, he has is, a thing. Is it a camouflage yeah. No, 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 I get it. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah I just okay. was clarifying. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you don't have to tell yeah. me. Uh, is he good, a good job of leading the Ukraine? Um, I think so. I. Um, <laughs> Do you think his persona, though, seeing him on screen... Uh, you know, having that comedy background, or is that helping win the war? I mean, are they doing? Is he doing a better job than maybe his troops are? He's, on the field? Well, I, I won't compare him to his troops, but I'll say that, like, in terms of winning over like the audience of the world, he's doing a much better job than Putin. That's maybe okay, uh, <laughs> obvious, but um, yeah, I think having the experience of knowing like how people are going to react to what you're going to say from a non-political perspective is very different from someone like that is only spoken to their audiences or the world as a politician. So if what you're doing is managing and being careful and that is your job and only that, then you may not be the person who can get the world to see you as like a, a handsome former comedian hero uh, leader type. And uh, like I don't think many other world leaders would be able to do what he did. And I don't I don't know of you know you you remember something like Churchill or something, right? Like that's someone who we think of as like a wartime leader who inspired people. And uh, this guy's at least not like a weird dude with a cigar and stuff. So that's, I mean, <laughs> Churchill's great, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I, whenever Deborah talks for a while on these things, I get really nervous because she has so much information. <laughs> I have none. You're so much funnier. <laughs> you get to do the funny part. I have to do the grim part. <laughs> yes, I have it marked that way in my script too. Um, grim so, girl. But I mean, no, it's very true what you're saying. And for me, I, I have a more modern comparison. I mean, I think about Ashraf Ghani, not because he looks like uh, Zelensky, but he fled the country when the Taliban took over. And this guy stayed, even though everybody was encouraging him to leave. You know, and, and when you see him on stage every day or on TV every day with his green, you know, his olive T-shirt and he has a five o'clock shadow because he hasn't shaven or, or bathed or whatever. I mean, he is inspiring his people to fight. And I think he's actually kept the world interested in this conflict because we get mm. very bored very quickly. Yeah. I mean, look at Syria, look at the Middle East. I mean, would you agree? Probably? Yeah, we, yeah it's, bo it's boring for me as well, yeah. In Lebanon, for example. I'm it's bored. boring for you? I'm bored. It's the same shit every year. It's like, when is the next explosion coming? You know, I'm just waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> that was sad. Yeah, we're <laughs> no one's laughing anymore. No, mm -hmm. actually, there is one more leader I do want to talk about, and that's President Joe Biden, who we haven't mentioned yet. And the recent headlines about him kind of captured my attention. And that's when he didn't keep his distance, like the White House was saying he was going to go on this trip to the Middle East. And because of COVID, you know, there wouldn't be much physical contact. And yet the minute he landed in Israel, it was old Joe Biden, you know, throwing his arm around Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, shaking hands with Benjamin Netanyahu. Although then he gets to Saudi Arabia, and then it's just a fist bump with MBS, uh, you know, the crown prince. And Carmen, what do you make of this handshake diplomacy? I mean, what does it say to yourself? You know, you have a, a obviously Lebanese Middle Eastern background in addition to your German background. I mean, what, what when you see these images, what does it say to you? I think it's just Biden knows that he's going to die soon, so he doesn't give a shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, look at him. Like, he's like trembling, shaking. He doesn't he doesn't remember his own name. Like, he knows he's going to die soon, so he doesn't care. Pre-election, he was all about the mask. He had a huge, did you notice pre-election he had a huge mask covering his entire face he's like yeah COVID is gonna kill you all Trump blah 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 post-election he doesn't care anymore he just won the election he's gonna die tomorrow so who gives a shit 
<laughs> so does it make people angry, though, to see him, for example, being so close with Israeli leaders? Obviously, there's been conflict going on for a long time, and there have been various incidents, you know, that have occurred recently. And it just it seems like is he getting too cozy, you think? I mean, I don't expect the U.S. not to be cozy with Israel anymore. It's uh, kind of like a long history between the two. Whatever Israel does, the U.S. is going to support it no matter what for, I mean, obvious reasons, economical, military, everything. So I don't I'm not surprised that he's handshaking uh, the yeah the prime minister of Israel, for instance, fist bump with the Saudi Arabian prince. Well, that was like weird, you know, like why are you fist bumping him? Um, yeah, that was a little bit awkward. Well, yeah, especially because of Jamal Khashoggi, who oh, I actually <laughs> have met and interviewed, and we still don't have resolution on that on that question. I'm wondering, Deborah, handshake diplomacy. I mean, it, does this send signals that America can't step back from, uh, or what, what is what happens here with this? I mean, as Carmen was saying, like, I mean, basically, you couldn't have had like a, a more perfect metaphor for the bad romance, you know, that the United States has with Saudi Arabia, and you know, they make this huge statement that okay, we're not going to be shaking hands at all on this trip because of COVID, forgetting that it's an airborne disease, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's not bad. Through handshakes, and then he, you know, meets MBS. He meets the the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia, and then gives him a fist bump, which you know I think to many people under the age of whatever he is, eighty, you know, a fist bump is a much more sort of you know uh, loose, affectionate gesture, you know, than a handshake. So the horror of that, you know, moment, I think, really resonated around the world. And the Saudis, uh, my colleague who's in Riyadh, you know, was saying that while the Americans tried to keep that moment, you know, as low profile as possible, the Saudis put it, you know, on every Mm. website, every front page. I mean, they'll be getting mileage out of those images for years. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Khashoggi. um, And I think probably most of the people, uh, you know, in, in the room here know that story. But basically, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is believed to have you know, personally signed off on uh, the murder of this dissident um, in Istanbul in 2018, and his body was taken apart with a bone saw, and you know, parts of his corpse were dissolved in acid. I mean, it was just this absolutely gruesome and horrifying crime. And Biden said during the campaign that he was going to make Saudi Arabia and um, MBS a pariah. And so that fist bump, I don't think the White House has fully grasped, like, you know, kind of how disastrous that was. I mean, if I don't want to derail this, um, but I think given the narrative that the White House has been putting forward about U.S. foreign policy now, that the U.S. is going to be a force for good and it's going to stand up for the West and against, you know, dictators and despots like Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, like the pariahs of the world, to muddy the waters in the way that he did, you know, has a special resonance in this moment. Because the G7, you know, they get together and they say, we're going to present this united front for sort of Western style uh, democracies and against regimes that do this sort of thing to people. 
And the Middle East trip just made things incredibly complex in terms of the images. Do you think the fist bump was like a middle way between like oil prices are, are rising up <laughs> and uh, and then Saudi Arabia is a horrible country. So handshake and no handshake fist bump. I like do. I think, you know, Joe Biden is probably not a man who gives a lot of fist bumps and, you know, hasn't probably in his life. And so probably is not like versed <laughs> in the etiquette of it or in the symbolism of it. And so he probably thought that it was a step down from a handshake, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, as opposed to clasping a hand, you know, because he's a backslapper. He's all about touching, sort of uh, a glad handing politician. And so he probably thought that a fist bump looked less engaged on a human level. Mm. It yeah. was very strange. I mean, it really was a very yeah. strange thing. Yeah. Yeah. I um, think it was, you, you compared Biden to, to Schultz earlier, saying that Schultz had done more, uh, you're saying, you know, Schultz had done so much of his um, of his agenda, but I, I actually I just want to point out that Joe Biden has completed a hundred percent of his agenda, which was to be president. <laughs> <laughs> like he did it. He's probably not even going to try again <laughs> to to be president. Yeah, to run again. I did it. I don't know. He, he may be forced. He, yeah. I, I, yeah, he, yeah. he said he wanted to initially, which I was like, really? I thought, yeah, Kamala was well. Anyway, who knows? This is why I, I'm a Berlin resident now. <laughs> Much happier here. Well uh, let me open it up to the audience for a minute. Does anyone have any questions for this panel about uh, whatever topic? doesn't have to be fist bumps or MBS or anything. Stefano. Um, yeah, just continuing on the handshake, actually. I was wondering, I mean, obviously that they knew this meeting was going to happen. They knew this like first meet between the two was going to be on film or whatever. So isn't there someone on Biden's camp that like they go through the possible scenarios, explain what he should or shouldn't do? Or do you think that happened? And then he just didn't. He forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like how, how much goes into that? Obviously, um, like premeditation, like thinking how you should first react. You know, I think that they put a lot of thought. I mean, so it is worth saying, I think, in this context that, you know, there are reasons why he went to Saudi Arabia. You know, it's not simply, you know, a checklist. And, uh, you know, when one goes to the Middle East as U.S. president, you also visit Saudi Arabia. There are reasons he went now. Um, And the Saudis have recently been slightly more constructive when it comes to Yemen, which is a forgotten conflict that has created unbelievable suffering in that part of the world. And it has been on this administration's agenda to try to at least get a ceasefire that holds there. And the Saudis are key to that. So that was a way of sort of rewarding uh, MBS for doing that a few months ago. Of course, it also has to do with a kind of great game of influence in the Middle East with you know, trying to keep the Iranians in check and uh, the sort of battle between the Saudis and the Iranians. Um, the Americans are going to come down on the on the side of the Saudis for all kinds of reasons. And then, of course, like, you know, as Carmen brought up, I mean, the issue of oil. Biden is under enormous pressure. He's, you know, his approval ratings are, you know, in the low 30s. And Americans are convinced that he has the power to single-handedly reduce uh, gas prices. And so getting some sort of, you know, signal from the Saudis that they're going to produce more oil and help bring the the prices down was considered also like a necessary step. I mean, I read today that apparently the Saudis are now buying oil from the Russians. <laughs> so, you know, so circumventing the sanctions. I mean, you know, all of this is just the absolute mess that, that fossil fuels 
get these Western democracies into. And that continued reliance means that you keep having to make these awful, awful choices. Plus, the peace treaty between Saudi Arabia and Israel might have influenced maybe the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States, where the U.S. has to tune it down a little bit of being too harsh towards Saudi Arabia, maybe? Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I mean, after, you know, so you have these Abraham Accords. So Israel has basically you know made peace with some Arab uh, countries, and a lot of this started under Trump already. And so this was a continuation, actually, of those policies and trying to um, reduce tensions between Israel and Saudi as well. Yeah, so that was another, you know... Uh, item to take on the on the to-do list in Jeddah. I don't know. When you look at what he what he Biden got out of the Saudis versus again these really disastrous images. I mean, I think a lot of people around the world, you know, looked at that and just saw this kind of, you know, craven or or at least an incredibly sort of sad moment where a weakened US president had to go in there and play nice with this killer. Yeah. The next audience question came from comedian Daniel Ryan Spaulding. He created the YouTube sensation It's Berlin. Um, I'd be really interested to know your thoughts about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, and if you think that this is um, something that will end up bleeding into other uh, countries as different movements. And then also an interesting thing that came out of the overturning of Roe versus Wade was that there was a number of different trans and non-binary activists that wanted to make it um, known that being pregnant is not just a woman's issue. Um, and so that was really interesting, the discourse that came out of this. Lots of American politicians using the term pregnant people or people with uteruses, trying to be more inclusive and not necessarily use the word woman, which also pissed off a lot of feminist activists. And then also sort of the right wing used that as um, a tool to sort of denigrate activists to make it seem ridiculous that they're not using the word woman and they're saying pregnant people. So um, there's lots of different um, things that came out of that. So the first thing is about Roe versus Wade and the cultural implications globally for that and then about the trans non-binary issue. I'd like to know what you guys think. Daniel, I think you should take that one. Ah, obviously. Ah, <laughs> uh, let you the male feminist speak. There is one person on this panel. <laughs> I, I mean, if you do, or do you, yeah. I, I, no, I, I think you should take it first. Kick it okay. off, kick it off. We'll help you out. right. In terms of Germany, one of the things I hope that comes out of the overturning of Roe is that women's reproductive rights or reproductive rights in general, to follow up on the point that that is not necessarily exclusively women, become better protected here. Germany has a very strange relationship with abortion, um, some of which makes just literally no sense. And there have been improvements in terms of, of how that is legislated. The thing is, though, there is a habit like the Americans had of saying, the Americans, like I'm not one of them, of saying, <laughs> oh, well, it's basically okay. We're basically okay. And you can go from basically okay to really not okay very quickly, unless you do everything you can to make sure that you are very much okay. So I'm hoping that for Germany, what's happening there will be a wake-up call that like we can fight harder here. And to the second part about how we use language to describe people, and whether that's divisive or inclusive, Germany has a huge problem with that as well. I was trying to write the website for this podcast festival in two languages, 
And in one of them, I could refer to a podcaster as a person who makes podcasts. And in the German side of the website, I just really couldn't directly translate that simple word without genderizing it or making it into a convoluted thing. So to me, it is a challenge of this country to move beyond like genderizing everyone's job title. And I don't know how to do that. I mean, just speak English. It's like just, it's a newer language. It's not better. It's just newer, <laughs> um, you know, where you can switch from stewardess to airline attendant without reworking your language. Either of you ladies want to tackle those questions? Go ahead. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I talked earlier about Olaf Scholz's uh, accomplishments, and one that I neglected to mention was the fact that, um, you know, a lot of people aren't aware that abortion is actually still illegal in this country. And one thing that this government, uh, you know, did do uh, the same day that the, the Roe decision came down was to um, remove a Nazi era law that was still on the books that made it illegal to, quote, advertise abortion services. That meant if you were a doctor in this country, you could not say that you provided abortions, for example, on your website. So for women who um, were looking you know, for that medical care, it made it much more difficult to be able to, to find service providers. This government tackled that. Um, and I think it's probably the beginning of an increasing liberalization in this country. However, just across the border, you have the situation uh, in Poland and uh, the New York Times did a great piece a few weeks ago sort of looking into the future for Americans by looking at the situation in Poland, by having this incredibly restrictive abortion policy. What does it mean? And among the many horrible things that it means is that doctors are constantly under threat of being prosecuted for providing abortions in cases where there really is a threat to the woman's life. And so this weekend, you know, you saw cases in Texas, for example, where um, people were already miscarrying. And because there was still a heartbeat for the fetus, uh, you know, doctors were not able to provide the medical care necessary to help the woman survive this crisis moment. So Roe is horrible. Um, it's a wake-up call. Uh, sorry, Roe obviously is not horrible. This decision, the Dobbs, uh, the, deci <laughs> uh, the decision that came down by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe is a nightmare uh, for American women. At the same time, I do think that it will focus minds globally. And you're already starting to see cases in the in the states that are, are heartbreaking, but that will hopefully uh, lead Democrats to get their acts together and meet this moment in a way that they haven't yet, even though they had quite a bit of uh, advance warning. And then just briefly to the, the question of pregnant people, I mean... I think that the campaign against uh, Roe is completely rooted in a discourse about the patriarchy. Sorry to go there <laughs> on a on a lovely Sunday afternoon, but I mean it is a woman's issue. Um, it does have to do with subjugation of women when they are not uh, given complete control over their reproductive rights, and so I have some trouble with language that seems to erase that. 
However, I'm also all about inclusion with language. Like I am, you know, willing uh, to, I don't know, to 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 wrestle a little bit with um, the the language that I'm used to using, if it makes more people feel included. And so I've seen feminists in the states. Some have completely switched to pregnant people. Um, people like Gia Tolentino, who's been doing amazing, you know, journalism on the subject of abortion. She has entirely switched to to pregnant people. To me, that's perhaps a bit radical. Other people who are maybe more Gen X, like me, um, have been kind of uh, folding it in their language. They use a mix of women and, and pregnant people. I think I probably feel more comfortable with that um, because I do think that we need to also recognize when we're talking about abortion, what's at stake? It is about you know women's lives, but it is absolutely about their autonomy and their equal rights in the society. Carmen, tell a joke. Tell a joke. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, it's really, <laughs> it was written in the U.S. because you saw all of this uh, mass shootings of like the people like shooting other people. And she then, said lighten it up. Yeah. Jesus. But then. Uh, but, let me double down. But then you had all of these people like shooting other people. And then and then I was like, this is exactly why you have to have abortion to kill those people who are going to eventually become people shooting other people. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> I think the main problem is, um, I mean, we were all really happy with Angela Merkel and everything, but she also comes from a very Christian party. And disassociating religion from politics is super important, and especially when it comes to those uh, crucial decisions like uh, the right for abortion or not. Yeah, having this disassociation. Religion is religious people have money. Catholic people have a lot of money, and they're always going to have a say about what is allowed and what is not allowed. And having like a clear differentiation between politics and law and religion is very important in order for us to be able to move forward. Otherwise, they're always going to be in power and decide what I'm allowed to do or not to do. Well, but if we just keep the justices Jewish, they're pro-choice. Yeah, Jewish is cool. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, no, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have time for one more quick question. Uh, hi. So I um, moved to Germany to punish my parents for voting for Brexit. <laughs> and so I wondered, looking at the UK from the outside, which is obviously just appalling at the moment, do you think that the UK can regain its international standing after the way it's behaved and in particular recent events with just the, I mean, complete moral disintegration of the government? <laughs> you well have played. 15 well seconds to answer that. <laughs> No. So who would like to take that? I think the UK is hilarious when it comes to politics these days. It's just very funny. I think you should keep it up. I mean, it's very funny. I don't know. Just keep up the bullshit. It's really it's really funny to see them degrading to that level, right? <laughs> Makes me feel better as an Arab. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah or Daniel? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think you're at a good place to build up from, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's only, oh, we ran the world, da da da. It's those, oh, that, you know, now she's got to believe another thing. Uh, you know, so like now, if you can get someone like charismatic, and we want, I think a lot of the world wants to like you, you know? 
So, uh, like, stick with, like, cute, like, Faulty Towers type stuff and then, you know, work your way up to the office. Like, right now you're in the, the Faulty Towers thing. And, <laughs> it's uh, Benny Hill at the moment. I right, think. it's Benny Hill, right. <laughs> All right. My metaphor didn't hold up. But the point is... <laughs> Yes, you know, people are always rising. Fall. Get like a nice, you know, a nice Jewish comedian to run your country and tell him not to shave too much. And yeah, they'll love you. Zelensky, have Zelensky, have your prime minister. Why not? I mean, he could be. <laughs> What's the name of the Ukrainian prime president? Zelensky, yeah, Zelensky. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> real answer? A yeah, real serious answer, answer oh, please. God. Come on. I thought I had dodged You're that one. You were the best between all three of us. You had like information about stuff. <laughs> I'm I mean, bring the journalists on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, in the, at the risk of sounding too American. I I do feel like that maybe we led you guys down the garden path a little bit in the politics as entertainment department that we Americans have come to expect and integrate entertainment into our politics to an extent that we elect someone like Donald Trump, you know. And uh, I don't think that Boris Johnson is quite as bad as Donald Trump, but certainly uh, for my British friends, he has been difficult to watch in that role because he didn't seem to sort of, you know, take the position as seriously as as he should have, to, to put it diplomatically. And so I worry that whoever is going to replace him, like what we're already seeing in terms of, you know, the debate among the the potential candidates, like, and the things that they're focusing on, you know, it does seem to be, you know, a kind of parlor game, uh, to use a sort of quaint phrase. Um, Whereas, you know, German politics, you know, of course, it can be stultifying, it can be boring, you know, it can be frustratingly staid and maybe um, excluding a lot of people because it does, you know, stay on that level for the most part. But there is a, a kind of rigor and a seriousness that I find extremely comforting, you know, me being grim girl here on stage. Oh, no. Like, I love it that's, too. That's my, like, like, that's boring my... politics? This is amazing. We should, yeah, why should this night. be interesting? Yeah. You're running a country. That's boring. But basically, like, all of the potential players, you know, even the, the, the opposition, um, you know, the AFD has crashed and burned as expected. And, you know, here so it's Germany. all like here in Germany. And so, oh, because you know, elsewhere they're still going on. There's another no, no, AFD. No, just in case oh, people okay. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's called. Yeah, every country has one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, they, in some countries they run it. Not different that's a name, under different names. Yeah, but you know, even the conservative opposition here, you know, they're serious people, and you know, it wouldn't be a, a disaster for this democracy, you know, should they take power. Because I, you know, I don't think that this country has has jumped the shark to that extent that people here expect to be um, constantly entertained by their politicians. I think it's a really rocky road. That's today's Stammtisch on Common Ground Berlin. A heartfelt thank you to my guests, AFP correspondent Deborah Cole, comedian Carmen Schreim, and PodFest Berlin founder Daniel Stern. Thank you. I'd like to also thank Common Ground Berlin senior producer Adina Al-Sayed and our social media editor, Stefano Montali. And last but not least, give yourselves a round of applause because you've been an amazing audience in this hot, sweltering studio. (laughs) Thank you. 
Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. Bravo! <laughs>